0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the Scholarly Communications Channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Heather Ford, author of Writing the Revolution. Writing the Revolution was published by MIT Press in November 2022. In writing The Revolution, Ford looks critically at how the Wikipedia article about the 2011 Egyptian revolution evolved over the course of a decade, both shaping and being shaped by the revolution as it happened. When data are published in real time, they are subject to an intense battle over their meaning across multiple fronts. Ford answers key questions about how Wikipedia's so-called consensus is arrived at who has the power to write dominant histories in which knowledges are actively rejected, how these battles play out across the chains of circulation in which data travels, and whether history is now written by algorithms. Associate Professor Heather Ford is Head of Discipline for Digital and Social Media in the School of Communications at the University of Technology, Sydney. She has a background working for global technology corporations and nonprofits in the US, UK, South Africa, and Kenya. A former Google Policy Fellow at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, former executive director of iCommons, and the co founder of Creative Commons South Africa, her research focuses on the social implications of media technologies and the ways in which they might be better designed to, pre- to prevent misinformation, social exclusion, and algorithmic bias. Heather, welcome to New Books
0: Network. Thank you for having me, Jen.
1: Yeah, of course. And before we get started, I would love if you could introduce yourself a little, um, maybe speak about where you grew up and went to school and perhaps what got you into the open knowledge movement.
0: Awesome. Um, so I am South African. I lived in South Africa most of my life. I was born in a small town called Pietermaritzburg. Uh, near Durban, uh, which is on the kind of east coast of South Africa. I uh, went to university at Rhodes University, studied journalism there, and started life um, in my first job working for a democracy nonprofit called the Electoral Institute of Southern Africa. Um, This was 1999, 2000, so a really good time in South Africa for working on um, democracy support. And that's when I started getting involved in the uh, nonprofit technology space, I guess, um, mostly in Africa. And that's when the first internet laws, as they were called, uh, were being promulgated. Uh, And I was really interested in the power of this new technology uh, for socioeconomic development and education. And I've had a um, strange kind of education since then. I um, went to Stanford uh, to do a fellowship um, in... Uh, it was called the Social Entrepreneurship Fellowship. And then I actually only went and did my master's uh, at UC Berkeley in information management and systems at the former library school. And then I did my PhD at Oxford University at the, the Oxford Internet Institute. And that's when I really started um, delving more into Wikipedia and the and the uh, case study that we're gonna talk about today.
1: That's really a global path <laughs> through education and, and all kinds of things. Um, so turning to your book, Writing the Revolution, Can you um, maybe speak more about your work with Creative Commons and Wikipedia and then the goals that you brought from from all of that work to writing this book?
0: Yeah, so I am one of the co-founders of Creative Commons South Africa uh, and that happened on the back of my fellowship at Stanford. I was really excited about Creative Commons when I first heard Lawrence Lessig speak about it. at Oxford when I first moved to the UK, um, I think in about 2002. Uh, Creative Commons was only a few months old then and I was really excited about Creative Commons because I felt like it was really offering um, the Global South and Africa where I was from and had been doing a lot of nonprofit work uh, this really great opportunity to share knowledge about our places and local content. And Wikipedia really was the instantiation of the license because it was the greatest example of how the license could be used to share knowledge about the world in one's own language. So um, in my work with iCommons when I was executive director, I hosted Jimmy Wales and um, other folks from the free and open source software movement on numerous occasions, and we did you know, I think probably the first um edit-a-thon, uh in Johannesburg and uh students at a university, inner city university were editing Wikipedia in their own language. And I was really excited about it, but my skepticism really grew during this period, um up until about two thousand and nine when I went back to university because I didn't really know what else to do. And my skepticism was that all the licenses in the world um, wouldn't change the fact that there were reasons other than whether knowledge was true or not or whether you had a license that enabled you to share it or not um, in actually sharing that knowledge and people listening and hearing that. So, you know, it's not just um, true facts or true statements or... Um, the ability to share that affects whether we know stuff about the world. Um, I was starting to see a lot of um, bias and racism in the ways in which knowledge was accepted or not in places even like Wikipedia. And so this book was really an exploration, a very broad exploration and an open exploration of how Wikipedia shapes the world uh, in ways that we don't usually think about it because when we think about uh wikipedia shaping we usually think about you know vandalism or disinformation and those are really obvious cases of people trying to shape um wikipedia for worse but actually like any knowledge project um, wikipedia is shaped and influenced by the people and the technologies that create it and so that's the the book is really taking um, this really positive example in many ways um, and trying to look at all the ways in which knowledge was shaped for reasons other than whether things were true or not yeah. um, thank you that's, um, that's like an
1: exciting um, framework for thinking about about wikipedia so then in in chapter one you share some anecdotes about how wikipedia's content circulates on the internet um, and you argue that what we're seeing is an epistemological revolution of knowledge platforms becoming a direct source of facts rather than a directory of other knowledge sources. Uh, and can you explain more about that shift and why it matters?
0: Great. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, what's happened in the last 10 years and uh, something I saw uh, shortly after the revolution in 2011. So, um, It started with Google, but all the other major search engines and platforms have followed. When you used to search for, say, the Egyptian Revolution or Heather Ford on Google, Google would give you a long list, still does, give you a long list of sources in which you might find more information about the Egyptian Revolution or Heather Ford. And it used to prioritize. It would, it does. It prioritizes sources, and Wikipedia was always up there in the sources that it prioritized. But it really was a directory. It's a directory, but it it helped you find the information really quickly by going to one of the top searches, search results. But in 2012, something really radical happened, and that was that. Google presented a little fact box on the right-hand side of the page when you searched for the Egyptian Revolution or Heather Ford. And the fact box wasn't just displaying a list of possible sources um, that could possibly answer your question. It actually was uh, presenting single facts about what you were searching for, so single answers to your questions. and these were presented in a way that looks really authoritative. And a lot of these um, claims or statements are actually being sourced directly from Wikipedia. We don't know that all the time because a lot of the time um, the citations are actually removed. But this technology is also being used uh, to develop conversation agents in chatbots and in smart speakers. So you can ask questions of your smart speaker and it will give you answers. Um, There's no ifs or buts there. There's no list of possible answers. It is a direct answer to your question. And that I think is a really, really important move that not a lot of people have actually um, paid much attention to, but I think is really significant because it, you know, we've always we talk about the power of these platforms, but this really really consolidates platforms like Google, um, and you know enables it to become much more of a nom- of a monopoly in terms of being seen as the authoritative source of knowledge about the world.
1: Absolutely, that like that knowledge box really like changed things, and for myself as a Wikipedia editor, changed how I think about the possibility of what can happen um, when I edit Wikipedia um, and potentially influence what's then showing up in Google, um, which leads a little into. My next question, uh, something else you talk about in chapter one is mirror theory, and I really appreciated how clearly you explained this. Um, mirror theory posits that Wikipedia's biases originate from outside Wikipedia, and you challenge mirror theory and its assumptions about Wikipedia's neutrality. So for listeners who aren't familiar with mirror theory, could you share a little more about it and explain why you think it isn't true? Great. Great.
0: Yeah, so um, the way that Wikipedia's biases are explained are usually according to this thing called, that I've called the mirror theory. And the best way to explain it is by example. So in 2018, Donna Strickland won the Nobel Prize in Physics. And journalists at the time... um, when she won the prize, we're writing stories about the fact that Wikipedia didn't even have an article about Donna Strickland before she won the prize, and that some editors had tried to start an article about Donna Strickland, and they had um, had those editor, uh, th- those articles deleted uh, because Strickland uh, supposedly wasn't notable enough to be on the encyclopedia. And so, you know, the story was that uh, Wikipedia once again is biased against women and um, it's not allowing – it. you know, Donna Strickland had to win the Nobel Prize in order to actually be recognized by Wikipedia. Catherine Ma, who was the executive director of Wikimedia Foundation at the time, responded to journalists and said um, – you know journalists don't come after us it's actually you who are also to blame because wikipedia is just a mirror of the world's biases not a source of them and this was really interesting um because this really clearly encapsulates the feeling of wikipedians often that Um, all they're doing is summarizing what reliable sources say about the world. They're not actually producing truths on their own. Um, And, of course, Catherine received a lot of pushback on this and in true um, Catherine fashion, because she's a wonderful, reflexive person, uh, did come back and say, you know, she made an error, and it's so it's true that Wikipedia um, is not perfect, um, and it does actually have a lot of problems with systemic bias. The problem is that no one's really been able to articulate really well, other than you know um, a few people, what this what this bias is, because Wikipedia's Wikipedians certainly do summarize um sources and they are not allowed to represent what they call original points of view or original perspectives or do original research and so you know again this book is trying to figure out in the context of this single article what are some of the ways in which Wikipedia actually does that or enables this to happen yeah
1: um Right, because you're arguing in the book that Wikipedia is knowledge infrastructure and not just an encyclopedia. And um, and it's becoming authoritative because of the way it's viewed as consensus truth. Um, and so the core example in your book is one Wikipedia article related to the revolution in Egypt in 2011. Um, and you orient readers to that in chapter two. So could you give listeners a little context on the origins of um, how, or how the origins of the revolution were framed in the media broadly and then how one Wikipedia user also started doing the work of
0: documenting all of that? Thanks, Jen. Yeah. I mean, it's really important to, to look at this stuff historically because, you know, when we look in 2022, um, at the Egyptian Revolution, it just seems so obvious, you know. Obviously, a revolution was about to happen in Egypt, but actually, um, at the time, so that's January two thousand and eleven. Um, the Tunisian Revolution had just happened, and no one really, at least from um, the Western world or the Global North, was actually uh, suspecting that Egypt would follow Tunisia's path. Uh, The broad consensus in the media at the time, including an article on the BBC, was that Egypt wouldn't uh, revolt. It would not see the same revolution that Tunisia had seen. And so uh, this was actually a big surprise when it happened, and that's one of the reasons why the Western media wasn't actually in Egypt uh, during the first days of the protest. But yeah, in, in January, a single Wikipedian Wikipedia editor called The Egyptian Liberal uh, created the article. He actually created the article the day before the protest began, Um, which is super interesting. They had been planned by democracy activists like him, young Egyptian, um, had been involved in uh, democracy activism for many years, and this seemed like a great opportunity, but no one actually knew whether people would show up. They'd had protests planned for Police Day on the 25th, But no one knew whether uh, people would show up. And so he prepared the article using a single source from the AFP, which was actually about the planned protest. It wasn't about because it was the day before. (laughs) There was no journalistic articles about um, the protest and no one was expecting it. So um, he prepared the article and he published it within a couple of hours of the protest actually beginning on the 25th of January.
1: Yeah. And that example really shifts our understanding of, um, of Wikipedia documenting very much after the fact uh, that pro- proactiveness is really, really fascinating. Um, and so one of the key points that you make about the work that the Egyptian liberal is doing is that they're not only responding to framing by the media when they write the article, but they're also doing the work of framing um, for Wikipedia readers. And also perhaps more importantly for Wikipedia editors who will be working with them on this. So I would love if you could speak more about why uh, it's so important to note the framing work that's being done in this moment by Wikipedia and its users.
0: Great. So, um, Probably two things that are really important in understanding how Wikipedians frame um, and make decisions about what they're representing. The first is that Wikipedians decide whether a topic, a subject, a claim is worthy of documentation or not. Now, this is when Wikipedians decide whether an article like the one that the Egyptian liberal published on January 25, 2011, should continue to exist because many articles that are created every day are put up for deletion or immediately deleted because a single Wikipedian or a group of Wikipedians decide that it's not, it's not either notable enough um, or more generally doesn't comply with the regulations that are ascribed in wikipedia policy one of you know one of which is about notability um and you know there's other rules about uh about whether an event should be documented or not so the first is they decide whether an event is worthy of documentation or not because it could have just as easily happened that the egyptian liberal didn't get enough support for the article and it, it could have been deleted right the second is um, deciding how an event is categorized or how a subject is categorized. So in the case of the Egyptian revolution, these classifications really, really matter. They're very political and they influence how events are received um, and how they are responded to, particularly in an international context where the U.S., for example, and its supports or um, opposition to the revolution would have been really critical to the revolution's success. So deciding how to categorize as either a protest or uh, a revolution, for example, or whether it's a localized protest or widespread nationally, or kind of the reasons why uh, the protest has happened, all of these Categories that are very fiercely debated by Wikipedians are really important, especially in the first stages of the event, to the evolution of the event, to what happens during the event. So it's really important in terms of um, framing the event, what kinds of subject it is, whether it's important or not, um, how important it is. And that kind of framing is really critical, uh, not only to the way that we perceive the events that are happening on the ground but also the response to them which is kind of amazing when you think about it um it's really really powerful and and i should also say that every representation of an event is powerful in the same way right this is what media does it frames um our response to it um by kind of Shaping meaning, um, but what's really interesting about Wikipedia and why it's so important is is how critical it's become in terms of um, you know bigger um, infrastructures of fact travel and how how powerful it is. But I think you, you you probably want to get to that a bit later, so we'll leave it for there. Um,
1: <laughs> sure, okay. yeah,
0: I, I yeah, can't yeah. too enthusiastically. <laughs>
1: Definitely. And I mean, I think that framing work is something we have been taught that Wikipedia doesn't do. That it is this neutral, reflective mirror um, and watching for it as a mechanism that is doing the work of framing is really valuable, as you point out. Um, Another thing that you talked about then in chapter four is that... um, as, as this evolved, you learned some things about sources. So you talked about some of your prior work analyzing sources used in Wikipedia articles. And you noted that your thinking about sources changed radically when you started analyzing this Egyptian protest article. Can you s- explain more about how your thinking changed and how your observations challenge uh, the belief of the Egyptian government that it controlled local media at the time?
0: Great, yeah. So, um, sources on Wikipedia are really critical because of the fact that Wikipedians are only allowed to uh, summarize what they call reliable sources are saying about a particular topic. So, sources are really critical. If you're trying to figure out um, how a topic is framed, going to look at sources is a really great way of kind of analyzing it and I've been looking at sources um, for many years before I started uh, looking at this article actually and I'd done some really interesting work with some great data scientists um, in the U.S. including um, Shilad Sen and David Musicant and we'd done some work on sources and basically the, the big picture when you, when you analyze millions of sources across multiple language versions of Wikipedia is that the general rule is that Wikipedia on English Wikipedia, you'll see um, English sources from the majority, uh, majority of which are from the U S originate in the U S some from, from uh, the UK, but Uh, And if you're looking at Arabic Wikipedia, you'll see majority Arabic um, language sources. And so what was really interesting in this case is that what I saw when I started looking at the article is that um, Al Jazeera, which Saudi um, Arabian-owned media company was actually really the most powerful source by far uh, in this article. And things like the New York Times and the BBC actually trailed long um, behind them in the English language Wikipedia. And we also saw some Arabic um, language sources. And so... What you actually see in the documentation of historical events is that people need, Wikipedians need sources, and so they use not what is best according to uh, policy, which is according to the policy is, you know, um, academic, peer-reviewed sources, but also just what's available. And when you're documenting a current event like this, Al Jazeera really was the only um, source that was covering the protests in English and in Arabic uh, because, as I said before, none of the other major international news outlets, English language ones especially, were covering. They weren't even in Egypt at the time. And so Al Jazeera really rose to the forefront of this coverage and actually influenced, I think, to a large extent, not only Wikipedia's coverage, but global coverage of the event because they were... There and they, um, this was also the rise to prominence of Al Jazeera because during the Iraq war, uh, the US had seen Al Jazeera, um, as kind of government propaganda, but for the first time during the uh, Egyptian revolution, they became recognized kind of officially, uh, even by the US government as a source of, of reliable news, and so, um, really, the the uh, the media that is able to take advantage of these situations um, by luck, really by chance, I think in in Al Jazeera's case, but also some really good coverage. Um, We're really able to frame events in really interesting ways. Thanks. And there's another, there's another type of
1: source, maybe, although perhaps it's not a source and just an influence that you talk about in chapter four, Um, that I was fascinated by. You explain that even though Wikipedia forbids original research, the local knowledge provided by Wikipedians is critical to the success of this article. You highlight a few key loopholes that let protesters impact the article's development through Wikimedia Commons. Can you speak more about how Wikipedia is actually a space for local knowledge to impact the way information is created on the platform?
0: Yeah, so this was really fascinating too. I mean, um, I guess this is how knowledge gets produced in practice versus on paper in every case, but it was super interesting to witness it and in um, watching this article develop over time. And as you said, um, Wikipedians are not allowed to do original research. They can't bring themselves to the article in any way. But there was a number of cases in which Wikipedians clearly were actively bringing their own knowledge to the ways in which the article developed and in fact you know uh this is probably as I say you know the way that that knowledge is developed more generally so one case was where um the Egyptian liberal um who started the article? Uh, there was a lot of um, lack of clarity when events were happening so fast, and you had so many different um, sources saying different things. And in one case, uh, Wael um, Gabara, who was the uh, the former Google employee who uh, was jailed by the regime because he started the Facebook page uh, that was one of the sources of uh, the revolution. No one knew whether he was still um, the manager or the organizer of the page, the Facebook page. And so in order for for the Wikipedians to um, reflect this accurately, they had to, well, they said, does anyone know? And the Egyptian liberal, because he was one of the only Egyptians actually involved in the article, uh, the English language article, and he said, uh, yes, he's just spoken to Whale and well is still the owner of the page. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of these cases where – Wikipedians are actually bringing their own knowledge to it. Um, in the case of Wikimedia Commons, um, I think if if I remember correctly, and I was going to check this, but I didn't get around to it. But so Wikimedia Commons is where uh, photographs of um, photographs are housed that are used for Wikipedia. Uh, photographs and um, video was housed, and so. I think the case that you're referring to was when um editors captioned the um images there was one image in particular that was subject to a lot of debate about what was actually happening in the um in the photo because some said it was plainclothes policemen beating up someone uh beating up these protesters but others said they were just um you know, other protesters fighting among themselves. And so here was a case where um, editors really had to kind of reflect what they thought was happening, but no one actually knew because it was a still photo. Um, And uh, they really could represent what was happening in this photo according to their perspective. Was that the the example that that you were thinking of. Yeah,
1: well, and I think you also mentioned that um, if there is no source about something, Wiki- well, anybody can upload an image to Wikimedia Commons, and that it is a type of source that can be integrated into an article, and I never thought about it that directly, but of course, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. And we do that all the time with different um, events to, you know, gather more photos about specific places or topics um, to have a better representation on Wikimedia Commons, but I'd never thought about how that um, can be quite so strategic. Um, yes. Because, as in this
0: example. No, it's true, because, you know, when you um, think of the image, so there was a lot of debate also about the the image in the info box that should represent the revolution. And you can, when you start to think about the choices available, you can really imagine um, how much meaning an image actually brings uh, and how it also helps to frame the ways in which the article or the subject is being interpreted. Um, You know, the, the current image and the image that's been used for many years is the image of, Tahir Square with you know thousands and thousands of thousands of people, um, you know, in the circular formation, just when Mubarak's resignation was announced, and you know there were other options there of a single protester, um, on the lion statue that's often used, and yeah, I mean, I think uh, images are are a potential um framing device that are probably more powerful um, than, you know, single claims or statements. So,
1: yeah. Absolutely. And then another framing device is the title of the article. Mm -hmm. And so in the fifth chapter, you go into a lot of detail about the eventual name change of this article, shifting it to Egyptian revolution. And you point out that the process for this involved – some some actions that show us a tension between two goals of Wikipedia, um, the goal of retaining a neutral point of view and reflecting current information. Can you speak a little more about that tension and about the symbolic action of renaming this Wikipedia page?
0: Yeah, so this is a common tension, and uh, it's actually in the book I talk about how it's actually Wikipedia has evolved over time to being much more receptive to the documentation of current events than than it has been in the past. But Wikipedia also recognizes that it's an encyclopedia and that it shouldn't be uh too quick in its documentation or reflection of what's happening because in the end they really value their Um, neutrality, as they see it, and that that's really critical to their authority. But that's actually really, really difficult, as you can imagine, in the case of um, evolving events like this, because you don't want to wait for a historian, you know, two, three, four years at best to write the history of the Egyptian revolution in order to update the article. And so there is, as you say, this tension between being um, current and being really sure that they're reflecting what reliable sources in some are saying about a topic. And this was really, uh, this is always really demonstrable in the renaming of articles so when some historic event happens um the queen of england uh, the uh, the the queen you know dying or um in this case a protest becoming a revolution which is very subjective it's very hard to to actually recognize so what does it take to make a revolution um it's an interpretive act and so the renaming of this article from Protest to Revolution was really um, an important step. And editors had been trying, some editors, some very activist editors had been trying to change this article to Revolution since the beginning of the protest. And other editors were saying, no, it's too soon. You know reliable sources are not calling it a revolution, so don't even start you know, but everyone was expecting that Mubarak would resign, and so the idea was that when the government fell and by government they were interpreting it as the resignation by Hosni Mubarak, who had been the um source of so much hatred by the protest protesters. Uh, when he resigned, there was this sudden move by a mass of editors, many of which, many of whom had not been involved in the article prior to this, all moving into the page and trying to change the name of the article from 2011 Egyptian protests to 2011 re- uh, revolution. Now, some of the editors um, who had been there uh, for a while, we were saying, no, you have to wait, we have to wait. Other editors started a poll on the talk page and said, can editors weigh in on whether the name should be changed now that Mubarak has resigned? This is all happening within minutes and then hours of his resignation. Some editors are still asleep. Um, right. Uh, I mean, many of them were re- editing around the clock, but this is day 10, and the US, I think the US, they were still asleep, and at least on the West Coast. And so um, editors tried to stop this massive crowd that moved into the article, but eventually they just gave up because um, the sentiment was so. Uh, powerful and they did see that some notable outlets like the BBC and New York Times were calling it revolution. Um, So they basically just let the crowd take over. There was no kind of um, official decision. In fact, the poll that they started the article was actually changed before the poll had actually had a decision made about it which was fascinating to see when i when i did the calculations um so you know a lot of editors who were weighing in on this decision were doing so um you know meaninglessly because the article had had its name changed long before Um, And so, yeah, there was a lot of other kinds of action that happened around to support the name change. One very interesting fact is that uh, the Tunisian protest had not actually been deemed a revolution by Wikipedia, even though their leader, president, had um, fled the country, um, resigned. Uh, But that article was still called the Tunisian protests and so what the Egyptian liberal had been trying to do um, and another editor succeeded in doing was to change the name of that article to Tunisian protests because if that article hadn't been named as a revolution sorry to change it to, to to Tunisian revolution if that article hadn't been named Tunisian revolution then the logic by which the Egyptian revolution was being um, changed, i.e. when a leader exits from office, um, that wouldn't have been very well supported. So they needed to change that article. And so what's so interesting there is that you can actually see um, this kind of uh, wave um, or spring uh Happening materially in the renaming of these articles uh and how one article and one event influenced um by the strange action um the other article and the other event and then and then all the other um uh, revolutions that that occurred subsequently
1: yeah that is really interesting to think about the order of things in the quote-unquote real world versus the order of things on Wikipedia. Um, And so we've been talking a lot about what happened on Wikipedia, and I want to shift to talking about what happened outside of Wikipedia, Um, because in Chapter 6, you follow the journey that this article takes outside the platform. Um, So as information in the article connects to Wikidata and to Google's knowledge graphs, which we talked a little bit about at the beginning uh, how is all of this influencing what we understand as fact and as authority and what are some of the risks in all of that
0: yeah so as i was saying in 2012 uh google makes this big change that's actually supported by this new project called wikidata which is started by the wikimedia foundation particularly the german um, kind of chapter and Wikidata's goal is really to extract oh well, it wasn't actually originally to extract facts but um to represent originally just into wiki links which were which are um, connections between different language versions of the same Wikipedia article and so wikidata starts becoming this um home for facts um that are housed in wikipedia wikimedia Commons. Um, and other Wikimedia projects. And this really supports Google's uh, knowledge graph project, which also is uh, systematizing facts and extracting them from the web. Um, but Wikipedia becomes really important to that. And in particular, Wikipedia's info boxes become really important. And those are the little fat boxes on the right hand side of the um, Wikipedia articles. And so, What you find here is that Wikipedia is always really popular. It's a popular source. Um, Now I think it's 11th uh, most popular or 7th now. I can't remember. Um, But it is one of the most popular websites in the world. People look to Wikipedia to find out things about the world or to check facts. Um, But now it becomes even more important because – Google is actually a lot more powerful than Wikipedia is. Um, And so what happens just in terms of its popularity and its authoritativeness, and so what happens when Google extracts facts from Wikipedia rather than just showing a Wikipedia article in its entirety as a potential source of an answer um, to your question what happens then is um, the authority of those facts in the info box grows substantially, and they it grows because claims become uh really simplified um and decontextualized so for example, when you see the claim um that um, in the in the Google's knowledge box that a certain number of people died um, and that there's no source um, or citation for that claim, for example, it, it really looks a lot more authoritative than if you say, if you give it a lot of caveats and you contextualize the information, right? And again, this is not new. We've known this for many, uh, for a long time, that um that when f- facts don't have this contextual information, they just they they appear more authoritative, and so what happens problematically when Google starts extracting its facts using machine learning uh, to populate this massive database of facts uh, in google's knowledge graph is that we have a decoupling of the fact from its source and from the social context that we talked about before. So all the reasons or all the things that are actually really useful to know about when you're evaluating whether a statement is true or not or whether you should trust it enough for the thing that you're needing it for, I guess. Um, When the sources and citations are removed and when the link to the Wikipedia article is removed, and when the um when the uh virtual assistant or the smart speaker gives you the answer without citing the source then uh it looks more authoritative than it is and also you can't question the source you can't or the the fact you can't discuss it in the same way that you can do on wikipedia so this disconnection happens um, increasingly from 2012, and the risks of the journey, as I've said, from from Wikipedia to these other places, notably the database or the knowledge graph, is that um, all these this contextual information that's actually really critical to evaluating it disappears.
1: Definitely, the the decontextualization really changes things, as you say. Um, so then in your final chapter, you reflect on how history is now written by those who can create and share data. And you note that the real um, power dynamics uh, lie in this knowledge creation process. This process, as it happens on and outward from Wikipedia, brings us back to your initial argument that we're seeing an epistemological revolution in the way Wikipedia functions in the world as an encyclopedia. Could you speak about some of the suggestions you make for how we can improve the platforms that house and curate our knowledge about the world? Uh, What do we need to shift both about how we understand those platforms and also how we interact with them?
0: Yeah, so I've gone around this question of, of bias for many many years, and I think what I've really realized is that um all these de biasing, so called de biasing activities um that we engage in are not um evil or bad in their own, but they're problematic because we cannot ever fully debias any representation whether it's from wikipedia or the most um notable scientist we cannot um remove the frame and so i'm really inspired by um thinkers like donna haraway and other um uh feminist um sociologists of science and technology who really emphasize uh the fact that what we should be doing is really trying to situate knowledge so as much as possible to contextualize where knowledge is coming from and to then make the frames uh visible so um Knowing that, because there is no representation outside the frame. And so my work now is really just about this. It's not about trying to de-bias by adding more voices. And I'm not saying that that's not important work to do. It is very important work to do, but it can't be the only goal. The goal also should be about trying to make the context of knowledge available. In addition to all the, the very, very, very critical work around... Um, uh, competition because the monopoly status of all these platforms including wikipedia actually are very problematic but you know the frame is really important and i think what we should be doing is trying to think about practical ways in which we can contextualize the knowledge that is represented in these platforms Yeah. That includes context. Oh, yeah, sorry, right. go yeah, I ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I should explain what I mean. Um so that includes things like when was the claim made? It's kind of temporality. When was the claim made? That's really important to know, right? Um, a claim that was made a hundred years ago versus a claim that was made five seconds ago. Um, who made the claim? So the source of the claim and its sources. Um is really important, and information about where the claim was made, for example, become really critical. So the kind of geographical locus of a claim and the extent to which, in the context of an event, that becomes really important. To what extent is the claim made in the locus um, or the location in which the event is happening, is very different to a claim that's made very far from the event, and so these kinds of contextual clues or contextual data is actually really, really critical to us being able to evaluate the claims that are being made on platforms like this. And so I think we should be paying a lot more attention to these kinds of data rather than only whether by some global standard a claim is true or not. Definitely. We need like a more nuanced set of
1: literacy tools for sure. Uh, And figuring out what those are. um, It's a, it's a big project. Yeah. (sighs) Um, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you're working on next. um, What research projects you have on your plate now, if you're working on any of the issues that you raised in your book.
0: Great, right. yeah, so as you said, this is a big project, but it is my project and actually, um there are some very practical things that we can be doing, and so my latest project is on question answering machines, and question answering machines are the uh, is a new facility that we're being um enabled by, represented by um, things like virtual assistants and smart speakers that enable you to ask and have a question answered um, about the world. And so I think this is really interesting uh, feature of kind of uh, the everyday application of AI and machine and machine learning. And I think w- what I've been doing in my latest projects um, that you can find at questionmachines.net is trying to explore how um, everyday questions about the world can be answered in ways that contextualize those answers. Um, So platforms, as I said, are extracting these answers from all over the web, um, but they're often decontextualizing them by not offering all the things that I was talking about before. And so these things are very um, practical to do. So if we had to have uh, a question answering machine that did give us context, that did enable us to evaluate the answers that it's providing, what would that look like? And so, I'm really at the beginning stages of that project to explore with other, um, with data scientists and um, digital literacy experts, what this would look like in the practical instance of a smart speaker that only has a voice. Um, how might smart speakers present answers? In what I think is a more ethical way, which is, you know, providing this situated knowledge.
1: That's exciting. I like to think about more ethical, smart speakers, (laughs) more contextual responses from our smart speakers. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting with me today. Once again, my guest is Heather Ford, author of Writing the Revolution, published by MIT Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you have been listening to the scholarly communications channel
0: of New Books Network.